Mesos is a framework for managing distributed systems. The goal of Mesos is to help engineers orchestrate resources among multi-node applications, like Spark or Hadoop. Mesos can also manage lower-level schedulers like Kubernetes. A common misconception is that Mesos aims to solve the exact same problem as Kubernetes. But Mesos is a higher-level abstraction. Ben Heinemann co-founded Mesosphere to bring the Mesos project to market. Large enterprises like Uber, Netflix, and Yelp use Mesosphere for resource management. Before he started the company, Ben worked in the Berkeley Amp Lab, a research program where the Spark and Tachyon projects were also born. At this point, Ben has spent significant time in both academia and industry, and this conversation spans distributed systems theory, practice, and history. Ben and I spoke at KubeCon 2018 in Copenhagen, which was an amazing conference. We were both amazed at how big the audience for Kubernetes has gotten and the pace at which the technology is advancing. Today, Kubernetes is mostly used for scheduling containerized applications that engineers have built themselves. But there will be higher-level tools that use Kubernetes as a building block. Much like Zookeeper was used as a building block for Hadoop, Kubernetes will be used to build serverless applications and distributed databases. Once you are using a distributed database built on Kubernetes, you may not want to think about the container orchestration that's going on. You want to think about the raw storage and CPU requirements for that distributed database. This is one reason why Mesos is compelling. Since Kubernetes creates an increased cardinality of distributed systems, it's good to know that there is a framework like Mesos built to manage those higher-level applications. I really enjoy this conversation with Ben Hindman, and I think you will too. Let's get on with the episode. Ben Heinemann, you are the Chief Product Officer at Mesosphere. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Jeff. Great to be here. Yes. We last spoke several years ago on Software Engineering Radio, and that was closer to the time when you had been working at Amp Lab in Berkeley. I think you had just started Mesosphere when we last spoke. How has the field of distributed systems changed since you were working at Amp Lab seven years ago? Well, that's a great question. I, I I think there's been a couple of things that, from my perspective, now being outside of the AMP lab and in the industry, that I think are, are interesting to think about. One is distributed systems are far more commonplace in the last couple of years than you know 2009, 2010, when I first came out of the AMP lab. I think a lot of people used to think that you needed to have a PhD to be building, operating, or working on a distributed system. It was usually kind of the folks that were working on that stuff. It was those were the people that were, were really doing the work. Now I would say, whether or not people realize it or not, everyone is pretty much working on a distributed system. They're either interfacing with some other API, in which case they need to think about what happens if there's any kind of issues or failures with communicating with that service, or they actually are building themselves multiple different components that are all communicating in some kind of a distributed way. And I mean, it's sort of, it was interesting, actually, I got my bachelor's degree at the University of Washington. And when I was at the University of Washington, and the whole sort of big data Hadoop movement was happening, all of a sudden, big data classes started getting created at certain universities. And the University of Washington was one of the first ones that had it. And I know that because one of the founders of Cloudera actually came and, and helped run that course. And we always had distributed systems courses, but I started to notice even at Berkeley that there was now distributed systems courses not just being taught at the master's or PhD levels, but even at, uh, at, the, at the undergraduate level. So anyway, I, I think that's probably one of the, the biggest shifts that I've seen is it's just much more commonplace now. Pretty much everybody is working on or doing a distributed system. And I think that's great because, uh, you know, that's that sort of is the requirement uh, these days when you think about the kind of applications that we want to build they need to be distributed in, in in some nature. So I think it's a good shift. Has there been a complete convergence in the questions that theoretical institutions are asking and the questions that 
industrial institutions are asking? That's a good question. I don't think entirely. I, I think the other thing that really has happened is that certain hard problems of distributed systems have gotten solved and, and sufficiently abstracted away that now people can just rely on those things. So a, a great example is going into my time at Berkeley, if you wanted to talk about consensus, a hard distributed systems problem, you know, you pretty much had to read the Paxos paper and uh, most people can't get through that thing. <laughs> and so if you then looked at the kinds of distributed systems that were coming out roughly around that time and, and even a little bit later, you had people that were trying to build systems to solve that problem so that other people could take advantage of those systems. So, I mean, you always had distributed databases and all the work around two-phase commit and everything that, that was going on there. But now what you started to have is you started to have things like Zookeeper. And, you know, this was a significant system to, again, sort of, I don't know, commoditize or, or democratize people being able to do really complicated other distributed systems work. And that was like, that was a big shift. Now, what I think is, is really interesting about that, though, is things like reconfigurable distributed consensus. So, you know, if you think about Paxos, the way in which everyone had initially built Paxos is it was like these three nodes or these five nodes that they were going to be doing consensus forever, which is just not realistic because eventually one of those machines is going to die or maybe you want to go from three to five nodes. And so actual work on reconfigurable Paxos was like in the 2000s. Like even if Paxos was way, way earlier and we'd finally gotten to now building more robust systems like, say, Zookeeper, things like reconfigurable Paxos is not that old. Right? So, to, you know, when you ask your question about sort of what's happening from the academic space and then, you know, versus what the, the, the practitioners are doing, there was still a lot of really interesting work <laughs> that is critical that was still going on. And then the other thing that was really happening was even Zookeeper, while it shared a lot of the same ideas from Paxos, it had its own consensus algorithm. So it was Zab, if I if I remember correctly. And Zookeeper Atomic Broadcast. Exactly, exactly, yeah. And so then they were doing their own reconfiguration, which came out again, I don't know, I want to guess like 2012, 2013, maybe in 2014, right? So they were answering their own sort of similar questions, which had only recently been answered for Paxos. And then, of course, you had Raft. Right, which was now basically, you know, people taking a step back and being like, "All right, hold on a second. <laughs> now we've had some time of actually trying to implement Paxos in practice, of coming up with new variants of consensus like Zab. Is there a better way to think about this? A better way to do it? And so you definitely had a convergence, at least in, you know, the, the industrial side and the academic side of, okay, it's clear that we need these systems to be built so that they can be the foundation for all this other distributed systems work that we're doing. And so you saw that convergence, but I think that just sort of led to now people thinking even harder in the academic space. Can we do this even more efficiently? Is there completely new algorithms we want to do? I mean, technically Raft came out of academia and it was implemented rather quickly and then used in a pretty widespread spread manner. But again, there's still a lot of people that I know that are still trying to think, to, if they can push the boundaries even farther, I mean, just I think last year, there's still papers around things like improving Paxos performance with batching and, and pipelining and a bunch of other things. So I definitely think that, if anything, the fact that we wanted to use all this stuff in the real world has motivated, again, some work in academia, which I think is a great thing. Has it completely converged? they're at least tracking in a much more similar direction than they were 30 years before, <laughs> which, you know, things like Paxos got created and a few very small people did something around it. And then all of a sudden, age of enlightenment for consensus and street systems, everyone's doing stuff around it. And then you have the cryptocurrency people off in their own third area, the age of Bacchanalia, perhaps. Totally, totally. Or something else. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, it's, and that in itself, I think, will change the way we think about doing distributed systems. It's like the 60s of distributed systems. It's like they're all taking crazy drugs and trying new things and letting their flag fly. But Zookeeper, I think, is analogous to Kubernetes in the sense that 
it was a primitive that unlocked Kafka and unlocked Storm, I think, and obviously Hadoop. And then you see the bellwether of the same kind of thing happening with Kubernetes. It's obvious that there are going to be some... Oh, you need to unlock your iPhone in order to access Kubernetes? Yeah, I guess that's what happens when you... uh Thinks you, we think some one of us said Siri. One of us said Siri. I'm not sure how, but one of us said Siri. <laughs> so, what's going to be built on top of Kubernetes if we think about the analogy yeah. to the Zookeeper? Yeah. Well, so it, it's interesting because because the when you think about Zookeeper, you know there, there's etcd, which literally ended up being the Zookeeper for the Kubernetes world, right? And it's kind of like Spark and and Hadoop, right? So you had Hadoop. And then you had a zookeeper in that whole world. And then you sort of had this evolution. You know, eventually people said, okay, we're not going to do Hadoop MapReduce. We're going to move to Spark. And I think the same thing happened with, with zookeeper. Um, people ultimately said, all right, could there be something else? Which I think is pretty typical that we'll have, you know, some software built. And then and then there'll be a, another version of software that, that people will end up consuming. And etcd has, has been, you know, much more popular than just for etcd and both zookeeper as you were mentioning you know they have unlocked the kafkas and and all those things but i think they've also just changed the way a lot of organizations have thought about even things like doing service discovery and how they want to do you know there's just been a a lot of other really really interesting applications of it what's going to be the next stuff on 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 top of kubernetes it's interesting here we're at kubecon right now hope that's okay to mention. <laughs> and yesterday you heard in a couple of the uh, the different keynotes, people sort of asking a similar question and wondering in particular whether or not there'll be a convergence of serverless and containers and whether or not that will sort of be, you know, if you will, one of the, the next big things on Kubernetes. And I think it's a really interesting question because there's two ways to approach that. And there's two, I will give my prediction, but I could be completely wrong. You know, there's one way to approach that, which is to take Kubernetes and have it evolve into something which you can use in both a serverless function as a service kind of way. And then there's another path, which would be to take something like an open FAS or one of these, these solutions and just make them be incredibly successful on top of Kubernetes. And the reason why I think this is actually a really interesting question and gets back to you asking, like, what's going to be the future things on, on, on Kubernetes is because it's, I actually think it's a real dilemma <laughs> because the easiest thing for mass consumption of serverless would be to put it into Kubernetes itself, to make it be just part of the APIs. Because then everybody is going to be able to have a one-stop shop to be able to go, pull down Kubernetes, and be able to run functions. But the reason why it's a real dilemma is because the complexity of bringing all that into Kubernetes itself is non-trivial. And it just adds to the overall complexity of the distributed systems. We are talking earlier, you know, we're building distributed systems. They're still complex, even though everyone's doing it. It's, there's, it's still a really, really complex thing. And this is... I mean, I think this is a real dilemma. You're already seeing in the, the, the Kubernetes community, you're already, already seeing people, maintainers, contributors, trying to push back a little bit and say, hey, boy, hold on, what do and don't we want to pull into the core here? And is there other things we can pull out? Because you want to get that to be a, a rock-solid piece of software. You want that core thing to be rock-solid. And even if you're constantly sort of bringing new things in, and that could threaten the stability of the software is a real dilemma. <laughs> so, so is that because if you wanted to pull serverless technology into the core Kubernetes APIs, it's like trying to just shuttle in the most complex scheduler possible? Yeah. I mean, it's basically just trying to shuttle in all the components that themselves will have a life of their own and evolve into you know, this lower level system, which also has a lot of stuff it needs to do. And it just, you know, the software gets bigger. Maybe they want to go in slightly different directions. You know, it might become harder to to easily define some of the interfaces and intersections once everything is kind of within the same, you know, the same code base. In many ways, it's kind of like asking the question, do you want to make Kubernetes a monolith? or more of a microservices architecture, right? And we're promoting, you know, a whole part of cloud native is everybody go microservices because they have independent components that can all communicate with one another. Why? Because 
you know, even though it is way harder to manage and you need things like container orchestration, resource management to run all your microservices from an oper- from a you know, building perspective and an isolation perspective, it's way easier to think about. I've got my thing, it does this thing, it does it well, and it interfaces and com- communicates with other things. Versus, you know, the monolith approach, like throw it all in the same thing and, and let's figure it out. So, so anyway, so that's, I, I think that's, it's going to be an interesting thing to see how that evolves. Because I think one of the things that Kubernetes has historically done really well is been a one-stop shop for folks. They can, you know, show up and do pretty much everything they want to do. And as, as serverless continues to grow, it'll be interesting to see if, if, you know, the project decides to pull it in or ultimately if it, you know, remains something that runs outside. And I can't speak for, for, you know, the maintainers, but if I was a maintainer, I'd probably be in the position of let's keep this thing outside (laughs) because I have my you know, I've got my users to think about here, which are running this and want to make sure that they're not going to run into issues. But on the flip side, it creates a more potentially cumbersome or more difficult experience. And, you know, you can work around that, but it's it's just a thing to be considered. But we're still in, uh, we're still in the let a thousand flowers bloom stage anyway. And there's five or 15 or 20 or 50 serverless frameworks yeah. built on Kubernetes. So let them yeah. sort out the hard problems right. Maybe if we come to a consensus on what is the best way to do it, then okay, pull it into Kubernetes. But until then, let the other let the hackers. You know, and I totally like that approach as well. That's an approach that I would always advocate for and and want to do. The toughest part in today's software, though, is whichever one emerges, that thing itself, it's highly likely, might have twice the number of lines of code as Kubernetes by that point in time. <laughs> You know, it, one of the the interesting things is sort of the higher up the stack you go, the technology stack always seems to just be more lines of code. <laughs> it could just be even harder at that point to decide to to converge the two. But it, but it is an interesting question because I think what's on a lot of folks, not not a lot of folks, but what's definitely, I mean, this whole serverless thing kind of came in with a crazy bang, right? And like we sort of talk about you know hype cycles a lot in this industry. And I think you had crazy hype for Docker and no one, I don't, you know, everyone's like, I don't know that we've ever seen hype like this. I mean, you had crazy hype for OpenStack, <laughs> right? I think people are like, whoa, we're at peak hype. Then I think you had crazy hype for Docker and we were like, whoa, we're at peak hype. <laughs> and then we had crazy hype for Kubernetes. We were like, whoa, we're at peak hype. And I just think, you know, as the industry continues to grow and as more and more people need technology, I just think, I don't think we're ever going to get a peak hype. I think we're just going to, I let think, you know, it could be wrong. But serverless was kind of this this interesting one where it totally peaked, like everybody was talking about serverless. Serverless conferences spun up everywhere. And a lot of people are doing serverless. Don't get me wrong. And I'm not saying that even though we've had the peak hype, it, there's not actually the traction. But I think because there's enough sort of almost overlap between containers and, and container orchestration and serverless, it's it hasn't been the same, you know, sort of like peak hype and then one thing has been forgotten about and the next thing is is, is doing it, right? Like a lot of people are like, oh, well, okay, you know, this year we're doing container orchestration, using Kubernetes, running containers. Next year we're just going to be doing serverless. I'm not sure that's going to happen. But I think it's like, it is a question on a lot of people's mind. Like, is that... Like, should we stop thinking about containers and should we just start thinking about the functions we want to run? Well, it's certainly a lot more money in the containerization, Kubernetes migration, vendor sales space than there is the serverless migration space, as far as I can tell. I think there definitely is, yeah. I mean, you have your big cloud players who have serverless offerings, but that's it. I mean, you've got... But vendors don't even know how to digest, or enterprises don't even know how to digest that stuff, right? And most don't. Most are still trying to figure out this transition between VMs and containers. And I think they're not even at the point yet of digesting functions as a service, exactly as, as you just said. And I think one of the reasons for that as well is because we're also going through this sort of interesting transition where functions as a service are closer to PaaS in many ways than containers are from the perspective of, you know, the functions as a service idea is much more like, all right, I've just got my language runtime, the libraries I need, and now here we go. Here's my function or functions that I'm going to run. Hey, system, you figure out how to 
get this thing up and running and go, which is much more closer to the whole PaaS world than containers. Containers were sort of like people kind of, PaaS didn't digest well with them, you know? They're like, speaking as someone who, you know, entered into the whole container space a while back and everyone's like, why aren't you just, you know, jumping on the PaaS bandwagon for me? Like, PaaS didn't digest well. What? Like, that's way too opinionated. You want me to force me to do something in a very particular way? Like, just give me some resources and some CPUs and some memory and let me just run some whatever software I want to run. Well, Cloud Foundry did quite well. Cloud Foundry did, did well, yeah, but I don't think that it even saw the adoption that people wanted to see that we're seeing with containers. You know, I mean, Cloud Foundry 100% has been a successful project, but not to the same extent with containers. And I think it was a Cloud Foundry, very opinionated past, just just as, as you mentioned, and a, v, a virtual machine marriage. I think that was a good marriage. But I think a lot of folks, they didn't want as high level, you know, opinionation of the Cloud Foundry, but they didn't want to... VM either. They didn't want to like configure a VM. They wanted something more in between. And I feel like, you know, that that's really what it, what containers, I, that's why containers really ended up taking off. And then there's functions as a, functions which are closer to PaaS, but they're still not full on PaaS. You know, they're still somewhere to me in between, from an opinionated perspective, somewhere in between functions as a service and, and containers and, and, and PaaS. That's what functions as a service are. So anyway, it, it's just, it should be interesting It'll be interesting to, to watch a couple things as they evolve. One, do people start to move to functions as a service? And if that happens, what does that mean for container orchestration? And and how quickly does that happen? And will the enterprises be able, be able to digest it? Just as, as you were saying earlier, you know, enterprises don't even know exactly what to do with functions as a service just yet. But the reason why I think that's so interesting is because as much as, you know, as I said, a lot of people didn't digest Paswell, there's something to be said for the simplicity of the PaaS model. And hence the success of Pivotal and Hence Cloud the success Foundry. of Cloud Foundry. And hence, I think, this interest in functions as a service, this sort of like, well, you know, because the container world, it is getting more complicated, right? I mean, doing a deployment these days on Kubernetes, you know, the, sometimes the joke is, is like, how many YAML files do you end up having for for doing the deployments, right? And and it's it's sort of kind of it, it's sort of this victim of its own success. Like started with a simple YAML, and then all of a sudden you had your persistent volumes YAML and your persistent volume claims YAML, and you had you know all these YAMLs that are being constructed. And while that's fine for the low level hacker community and you know the folks that are willing to to really engage and invest for a lot of enterprises out there it's like whoa wait hold on a second what just happened to me being able to be in my git repo and type git push and the system building whether it's heroku or you know any of the passes getting my build pack going and pushing it up to the cloud and just getting it running like that's all i want at the end of the day right and so it'll be interesting to see how that evolves in the container orchestration community, which I think it is. It'll be interesting to see if PaaS comes back with a vengeance <laughs> or if, you know, if there's more PaaS-like things that happen in the container orchestration um, community on Kubernetes or if people start, you know, adopting functions as, as a service, serverless more aggressively, specifically to simplify for a lot of the enterprise developers how they can take advantage of this dynamically scalable, you know, elastic and uh, dynamically scheduled and blah, blah, blah environment. All the things that containers are giving us, but they just don't want to go through the complexities necessarily of creating the containers. So it'll be interesting to see how that evolves. I always loved the name serverless because that is that you know that what that's containers right <laughs> that was the whole point right it's like we're not giving you servers or vms it's serverless from the perspective of whether we're going to schedule the containers on this server or that server it doesn't matter whether that server is virtual or physical it doesn't matter you know it was like it was kind of the serverless before serverless and then uh, to me it was very telling when functions as a service first came out and everyone called it serverless because I was like, wasn't that what we were doing with containers, right? And and to me, that was very telling that like, okay, there's still people out there that feel like, well, that's even still too complicated. We got to, like serverless needs to be even more abstracted. And to do that, we really need need functions. And of course, then the joke is, is 
once we have serverless, then maybe we'll get to functionless. And, you know, I don't even know what that is, but it's... It's all UIs. <laughs> UIs, Windows. <laughs> something past VR uh, interfaces. <laughs> Who knows what's happening there. Yeah. So maybe we can talk about that a little bit later. But I want to ask you about the container orchestration wars, because you were in the heat of battle when that was going on. And I was doing coverage of that, and, and I was going to conferences, too. My sense during the time was, especially looking back in, in retrospect, was... And at KubeCon, seeing how many enterprises are interested in buying some Kubernetes-related solution, as opposed to two years ago, when I got the sense that a lot of enterprises were like, I don't know what to buy, because there's Docker, and they've got their own company, and they're, they've got their own orchestration system, and then there's other orchestration systems, and then there's this new one called Kubernetes that seems to be gaining steam. I'm just going to hold all my bullets back if I'm the hospital or the telco or the bank. And so the community as a whole, the orchestration community slash the Docker community was like, ah, we need to resolve this because there is so much money waiting to be spent, which you can see now at KubeCon, that money is being spent and it's great. And now the community is bonding together and it's working out its contentions in special interest groups and working groups. And it seems like the diplomacy is there and it's great. And everybody's happy. But at conferences two years ago, it seemed like there was a little more acrimony, a little more despondency. What were your reflections on that time? Yeah, well, so we were definitely, we're in the, the heat of this. You know, we, we found a Mesosphere around Apache Mesos, which is not a container orchestrator, That's right. but it is a system upon which it's very easy to build container orchestrators. So, you know, we had one at Mesosphere called Marathon and, you know, a bunch of different organizations had their own. Netflix, in fact, just a week or two ago, maybe three, maybe more, a couple weeks ago, I'm not sure, they just open-sourced their container orchestrator that they have on top of Mesos that they've been running for years, and they run, you know, millions of containers on, and there's been a bunch of other ones as well. So, you know, when Mesos was first designed, it's interesting, it's kind of bringing this whole thing f full circle from our original conversation. When Mesos was first designed, it was designed with this expectation that in a couple years, people would want to have multiple different ways of scheduling, orchestrating containers and that we should separate out the resource management side of things and the orchestration side of things. And maybe there'd be crazy new programming models like, say, functions <laughs> as a programming model for people that would need to get orchestrated somewhere across the cluster. And so Mesos kind of made this deliberate decision. We, you know, we'd made this decision of separating out the two layers, do the resource management in one place and do the orchestration in another place. And that way you can go ahead and you can orchestrate everything from containers to Spark tasks to Hadoop maps and reduces to functions for functions of service, whatever it was. By the way, when you say resources, you mean CPU, memory, GPUs, disk IO, disks themselves, whatever it is, any kind of resources that might need to be consumed for doing some kind of computation. And so, anyway, it comes back to that whole question earlier about what's going to happen is, is Kubernetes going to bring in serverless or are they going to keep it running on top? Obviously, I'm biased because of the system that I built in the past. You know, we made that decision early on that it should be outside and run on top to keep the core simple. And I think that the Kubernetes maintainers are, you know, going to have to ask those same questions. But on the flip side, for us, what ended up being difficult, as you asked me to reflect on, you know, the, the past, what ended up being difficult for a lot of people was there wasn't a single way of doing container orchestration on Mesos. In fact. At the height of container orchestrators and Mesos, there were probably five. <laughs> there was Marathon, there was Aurora, there was one called Singularity, there was Titus, and there's one more that I'm forgetting. But anyway, there was a fifth one. So there's five different ways of actually doing container orchestration on top of Mesos, which on the one hand is sort of like a powerful thing, but on the other hand is very difficult for a community because they're like, well, which one should I pick? In retrospect, that was sort of architecturally, I think it was a great thing. And sort of for everybody else, it wasn't a great thing. Whereas Kubernetes was, they're like, okay, we're just going to have one way of doing container orchestration. That's it, you know. And I think that was a strong thing for helping people to be like, okay, well, you know, there's at least just this one way we can actually do it. 
Now, for us, and it's the Google way, which is definitely lends a hand, as we all know. They have a has some sample size. They've got a big exactly. That's right, and they have. Well, it's actually interesting when you say the Google way because I think we should clarify it's not what Google runs, right? <laughs> and you know, the interesting part about that is in the early when I was at Berkeley, we'd actually spend some time having great, you know discussions and, and debates through the Berkeley-Google sort of research uh, relationship about what was the best way of doing scheduling container orchestration. And their initial system, which was Borg, they ended up publishing a paper later around their other system called Omega. And the Omega model is actually much more similar to the Mesos model of like, hey, let's actually see if we can separate these two things out. The research- oh, that's the two-layer scheduler exactly. or the dual scheduler, exactly. or whatever they called it. Exactly. So, you know, so we, we first did with Mesos was exactly that. We did two-level scheduling. That was this whole thing of like the resource management is one layer and then the schedulers, the orchestrators, if you will, for all the different kinds of apps on top are the other ones. And that's then what Omega did as well. So even at Google, I think they were recognizing that they needed to rethink this sort of monolithic style that they'd had for Borg and figure out how they might want to improve that. And that was the Omega work that they actually did. And to the best of my knowledge, what ended up happening is that Omega work ended up getting pulled into Borg. You know, they took some of the best ideas from that and basically then made some tweaks and changes to Borg to reflect those that, that, that work that, that they'd done in Omega. But regardless, Kubernetes definitely has strong backing from Google, and I think that goes a long way in, the, in our communities, most definitely. So, you know, kind of fast forward to today, you know, one of the benefits for you know, us at Mesosphere continuing to use Mesos for the work that we're doing is because of this two-level model, we can bring really complicated distributed systems into the, the system. So that's what we did, right? We embraced Kubernetes to allow you to run it on top of the platform, uh, just like you can run a bunch of these other complicated systems, you know, Spark, Cassandra, Kafka, you know, Elastic, yada, yada. And so we always, you know, Mesos has always been this lower level substrate for us. And so, you know, the container wars, I think, it was this tough thing because when everyone's like, oh, you know, the container wars, everyone was really pitting Mesos against Kubernetes, <laughs> against, you know, Docker I see. Swarm. I see. And it wasn't exactly the right comparison, right. right? You know, Mesos had the name because when we talked about it at Twitter and when we talked about, you know, when these other big companies that are still huge users of Mesos, whenever they talked about it, they talked about it as Mesos, but really the way they were doing container orchestration was their own thing that they built on top of Mesos. And so that's like, that's where you ended up having these things really getting pitted against each other. From our perspective, we were like, well, this is a low level thing. And, you know, the real container orchestration that's happening is on our system on top called Marathon. And if people don't want to use Marathon, they want to use Kubernetes instead. Great. That's totally fine. So we brought Kubernetes into the system so you can use it as, it as well. And that's great because we end up, that decoupling actually lets us do some really powerful thing with Kubernetes, like run multiple instances of Kubernetes at the same time on, on the platform, which people are like, well, why would you want to do that? And I'm like, well, you might want to run a dev instance and a prod instance. Well, why would you want to do that? Well, you might want to run the latest you know, bleeding edge of the code base in your dev cluster, so you can be testing... Bleeding edge of the Kubernetes code Kubernetes base. Kubernetes code base mm. in your dev cluster, exactly. And in prod, you might want to run... You want, might want to run back a, a few versions. So if you run into issues in your dev cluster, you know that you could... Like the Monzo presentation yesterday. I don't know if you saw I that. I didn't see that one, but yeah. Well, there was some... They updated Kubernetes, and it changed... If you have no instances of a service running, it used to be empty JSON, and then it got changed to null object, or whatever the, what's the JavaScript null thing. And then they got an NPE because of it, because they had updated Kubernetes aggressively, and they hadn't changed their services, so they're like, ah, oh, it's not going to have a problem, but this illustrates the value of exactly what you're saying. That's exactly right, yeah. Yeah, and so, again, as projects, you know, Kubernetes has been a fast-moving project. I think it'll probably slow a little bit because stuff like this will cause issues at Monzo and even bigger places as well. And that's will 
I mean, that it'll force the project to slow down and operate a little bit differently because they'll have to. Because if they continue to have this kind of volatility, ultimately people will be like, hey, we can't like reliably, reliably run this stuff. Anyway, so yeah. And, and so it's not just that you might want to have two of these clusters. Some organizations might want to even provide something like Kubernetes as a service to their internal teams. And if they go to the public cloud, they could pretty easily do that these days. You can go to any of the public clouds and you can Kubernetes cluster for every single one of your teams. So that's really, really easy. But if you're on-prem, that's not as easy, right? How are you going to do that? Well, you could spin up a Kubernetes cluster manually, you know, for each of these teams, you know, use Puppet, Chef, Ansible, but then you're sort of in, you know, the day zero operations of that Kubernetes cluster and that's it, everything else you're really managing. You could run OpenStack and then run, you know, bringing up these Kubernetes clients on OpenStack, but then you basically, you've adopted containers to get away from virtualization and you're back in this world of, 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 of running virtualization. And so that ends up being one of the other things that we're excited about, about running Kubernetes for us on DCOS is this is Kubernetes in containers, so it's no virtualization. And so it, and it's actually nested containers because the Kubernetes clusters themselves are running containers. So we've had to do a bunch of really interesting work around nested containerization, which has been fun. But it, it Any did, performance penalties for that? Not performance penalties, no, no. It is interesting, though. Uh, there's, there's only a few places left in code these days where you can have constants, and that's the Linux kernel, right? Like most of the code we need to write these days, we can't be like, oh... 32. Let's not have more than 32. But I'm pretty sure you can't have more than 32. I can't remember the exact number, but you can't have more than some power of two nested containers in um, in Linux. And I think I think it's 32. <laughs> so I mean, I don't know who needs 32 nested containers, but I just I, I love that that at some point, you know, in our stacks as you get lower and lower, eventually there's just limits, right? You know, everywhere else we just try to make it like, oh, we'll build the software so you can have an infinite number of these things. But you know, at some point that would be too much memory to store in the Linux kernel, so they say no, 32. Why 32? Because I can fit that in a couple. Well, now couple those guys are and, now those guys are limiting the block size on on Bitcoin. This this is the same Linux people. That's right. Well, there's got to be constants and limits someplace. Yeah. So this on-prem market is that where you're finding the most success in terms of Mesos customer base? Yeah, I mean for for us, it's DCOS is the product at Mesosphere, also open source project, and on-prem is a huge, huge market for us, most definitely. And again, I mean we're working with some folks that that are just interested in running, you know, just Kubernetes. But they want a way of running that where they can run multiple versions of it, where you know they can easily do upgrades of it. That's again because the way we run Kubernetes on top, the day two operations of it is all part of the Kubernetes experience. You know, the Kubernetes has a service experience on top of DCOS. So we have software that's managing the upgrade of Kubernetes itself, which can be a a painful process. It has many uh, stateful components. There's a lot of work that actually has to be. thought through when you're actually doing that. So, I mean, it, it's a really interesting thing. And I, getting back to your earlier question, container wars, yeah, sure. And, you know, everyone, you know, having now a container orchestrator that we can all work with our customers on, that's a great thing. And it's wonderful to be able to, be able to bring Kubernetes via our platform to customers as well. And it'll also be interesting for us to bring this full circle as well to see what happens in the industry when it comes to, especially in the enterprise, when it comes to the serverless stuff. Because we do have more people starting to ask for it. And it will be interesting if, you know, we find ourselves bringing functions as a service to our platform, just like we brought Kubernetes as a service to our platform, and sort of what the spread will ultimately be between those two. To push us pretty far into the future, I had a bunch of questions about storage, but I'm going to skip those right now. This IoT stuff that's coming, I've been trying to, to, to cover this as best as I can. You can't can't really cover it because it's not a reality yet. But the world where you have a drone flying around outside and a self-driving car going down the street outside your window and smart street lights, smart mailboxes, smart refrigerators, all of this smart infrastructure that has a lot of idle CPU time and unused resources, 
this seems like a great place to schedule various <laughs> tasks onto, right? Yeah. You've got some job you you want to run essentially on your phone, like something that would be very complicated and today you would have to to call it and it would go get run on a data center somewhere. You can imagine it getting distributed among the drone and the self-driving car and the refrigerator and the stove and all these different computers you have lying around not doing anything. And I'm just wondering if you have any vision for what that's going to look like or how, how, what kinds of... Because that seems like the kind of thing that serverless is, is well-suited to. You're like, okay, I have this thing I want to get done. Go schedule it Find some me. resources. Because that's what serverless does is just abstracts away all the complex scheduling mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. work. That- yeah, I mean, I mean, so I think we'll probably have a couple more steps in the IoT world before we get to that one. Yeah. But it, it's an interesting question. I mean, the immediate concern, not concern, but one of the immediate things that has to get figured out is who owns these resources? And is it, you know, if I'm using them, these idle resources how can I basically trust the computation that's happening on those, those resources, right? So, you know, if these are, say, my resources, like I've got my drone that's flying above me, I've got my self-driving car, I've got my watch, I've got my phone, I've got, you know, these are all my resources, then I think that's one thing for me to be able to use all those resources in a really interesting way to run some distributed computation on my behalf to do something interesting. You know, I, that would be fascinating, right? I, you know, I've got the drone that's not doing any interesting computation. I've got whatever other computing resources I have that are part of my own collection and I want to do some interesting stuff and I can farm that out and do it. The, the question I think gets a little bit harder when it's like, okay, now I've got these CPUs in stoplights and streetlights and mailboxes. And, you know, what I think is interesting is, well, if the government owns it or maybe it's not the government, maybe some private entity, depends on which country I suppose you live in. <laughs> it's Amazon, let's be honest. <laughs> well, so that's interesting, right? Because if it's Amazon, then this is like, I don't know, cloud 2.0. I hate to say something like that, but I could totally see Amazon because they own the machines you're, you're running when you're in the cloud on. They own those. You don't own those. You, air quotes, own the VM. But, but really, I mean, it's re- the reason why TPM and, and you know, trusted computing is such a critical thing for a lot of organizations is because they want to know like they, they want to be able to trust the computation that's actually happening, that there's nobody interfering and tweaking some calculation, which is actually showing that their balance sheets or their you know budgets are dramatically different than what they actually are. So that, that'll be a problem that has to get solved when we move in, into that world. But it, what I think is interesting about it is I think the first phase will be edge computing, which is the idea that you have machines in your mailboxes and in your... And by mailboxes, I'm thinking of like the blue, blue, you know, in the States, public mailboxes that you drop stuff in, as well as in your parking meters, as well as in your streetlights. You know, I, I think that will start, that will be phase one. And we're already starting to see that, you know, this notion of the edge cloud, if you will, or just edge nodes becoming a much bigger thing. One of the, the organizations that, 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 that we work with, Royal Caribbean, their edge data center is in a cruise ship, which is the coolest thing to think about ever, right? You know, it's a cruise ship has a data center in it to do processing. Why? Because they want to be able to do interesting things on their cruise ships. And that's great because not only is it an edge data center, but it's an edge data center that moves, <laughs> right? So it's much more like the, the self-driving car or the drone or anything else versus say like an edge data center at an airport where when, you know, an Airbus A380 lands, you know, the double-decker big plane, has got terabytes worth of sensor data that it wants to do some interesting processing with, that data center is probably not moving. You know, the plane's landing, you plug in the gas, you plug in the fiber, and then you do some processing in the, probably literally a shipping container that's been placed on the tarmac. Who knows, maybe we'll even be putting racks in A380s at some point, so you can even do the processing on the machine, and then it'll even be even more edge. It will be a moving data center, moving edge data. But I think that will be the first phase, is we'll do a lot of this really interesting computation, more and more interesting computation on the edge. And I think one of the especially things that's interesting in that is we've got a couple of pieces of software that's going to, not software, hardware that's going to make that be even easier. Things like GPUs, things like FPGAs, and you're going to see 
even more hardware that's going to make it easier for people to do really sophisticated computing at the edge. Whereas like maybe in the past, they would have been like, well, the reason why I have to go to either my data center or my cloud is because I need this, this much computing resources. I mean, you, if you, you can pack a lot of GPUs into a single machine, you can pack a bunch of machines into a, you know, actual shipping container on a tarmac of an airport, that's a lot of computation you can already start to do right there. And now you don't have to ship the data. And this really is a lot of data. I mean, I mean, it's a crazy amount of data. You know, we talk about the amount of data that's generated by the uh, CERN uh, Collider here at KubeCon, and you're talking almost the same amount of data, right? Terabytes worth of data that's generated. So will you even just think about once you have a sensor in your underwear and you can, you know, take samples of your blood from your shirt collar and stuff like that like that's gonna happen that's gonna gonna be a ton of data that's totally gonna happen i don't want to have to send all that to the data center you don't know you're gonna want to be able to do some processing of that much more locally so you can do some things in real time so you know i think that's gonna happen and that's gonna be the first phase and then then i think I don't know, I don't want to call it cloud 2.0, but then I think there, once you start to get all these resources, exactly as you said, out there, there'll be this interesting thing because I think actually we'll see a lot of people move computation to these places. And then there'll be an interesting question of, do we have a way of selling that extra capacity in the edge to people, just like Amazon sold their extra capacity in their data centers? And will we have this whole, will it be Amazon or will it be somebody else that starts gobbling up all these edge locations to be able to sell virtual machines, containers, or functions as a service for people that want to do interesting, interesting computation in the edge. That to me could be, who knows, the next phase. But the whole edge thing, I mean, that's happening already. I mean, if there's any trend that we are seeing in our customers, that's one of the biggest ones. So what customers are you talking about? Like oil rigs? Oh yeah. I mean, yes, exactly. So heavy machinery customers that want to send their heavy machinery to job sites, to you know their own customers, where they want to increase the efficiencies, the yields, the safety, whatever it is of that stuff. They want to be able to do the processing right there. You know, there's, there's some folks that we've been chatting with where they're like, well, when we get the alert, we will get an alert, but when we get the alert, that's like too late. <laughs> if like, if the machine's telling us like, hey, we've hit this alert, it's like, Hours ago, we should have started to do some other things to, to try to improve this. We've either lost yield or it's a bad situation, right? So it's, I think there's definitely an opportunity for us to bring computation to the edge to do this. In some of these places, they don't even have great connectivity back to a cloud. They can't be shipping that much data. I mean, even self-driving cars and, and connected cars these days, they're on LTE and they're, you know, pushing some data up on LTE and they can send quite a bit of data, but not nearly as much data as they're actually collecting from their sensors. And there's some folks that we work with who, you know, they talk about their test cars that are out there on, on the roads, not the ones that customers have, have purchased or used, but test cars. When they pull into the test shop, they pull out the hard drive and they swap in a new one. And I'm like, oh, and then do you copy all that that data from the hard drive up to your data centers? They say, no, they, they UPS it <laughs> to the data centers, <laughs> right? Because it's so much data and they want to do all the processing. They want to pull all this stuff in. It's Netflix. In. What's that? It's like Netflix. <laughs> it's like Netflix. They're, you know, it's still way cheaper. They're sending the DVDs che- They're sending the DVDs. It's still way cheaper for them to UPS <laughs> or FedEx or, you know, whatever it is, the data. Oh, hilarious. And so if wherever the car shows up, they could actually do the processing right then and there. That's really powerful, you know. You know, they could do the processing even faster, and especially in this whole world of AI and ML, some of the most important parts of the processing is training the models with that data. And then maybe you don't need as much of the data. You've trained the model. You can keep training the model over time, but you know, then maybe it's easier to share the models and not have to share all the data. So you know, if you could do that processing, if you could do the training right there, update your model, send it someplace else. Now, one of the things that I I think actually will be a really interesting question, if we ever get to a world where we are doing more computation on, you know, in the edge, on devices, you know, especially when the computation and data, there's an ambiguity about who it's owned by. I think that'll be an interesting world, right? Like, if I've got my car, and my car is collecting data about my driving, and then, you know, the car manufacturer is doing, they're doing processing on that data on 
because they want to provide some either better service back to me or, or, or somebody else, we're going to have the same sort of problem of like who owns the data and who owns the res- the outcomes of that data? Is it me because I was driving the car that? And it's the same thing about like when I go surf on Google or surf on any of these other places, and data is, gets generated about my actions and what I'm doing. Like who owns that data? I think we're going to have that in spades even more as we start doing even more computation in the edge and collecting even more data about what we're doing in the edge. And you know, I I just I foresee even more uh, Supreme Court cases in the future about, you know, like, who owns that data? Is it, is it, is it me and, and people that own, own these edge processing devices? Can they use that data to, I mean, here's the crazy one, right? Can they use that data that they collected on about me to generate a model, a machine learning model? And if they do, could they then sell that model to some other person because it's a great model because it's been based on all their customers' data? Like, do I actually own that model? because it came from my data or does anyway interesting questions that all will have to be answered as we move to this future world but i think we'll answer them and it will be really fun to see what we can do yeah i think so too maybe we could do another show when that's closer to reality so i i know we're, we're running up against time but i wanted to talk a little bit about storage just because i saw you at the the storage working wor- group working yep. group yesterday and so the question of storage if if i understand correctly is People think of containers as a place to run their stateless applications for the most part. That's not to say that there's no state on a Kubernetes cluster. You obviously have state. You have mostly in etcd as far as I know. Well, that's like the state of the Kubernetes clusters maintained in etcd at least. But as far as having stateful, long-running applications... I think but people are not using Kubernetes, for example, to, to host their own databases as much as they are using Kubernetes for applications that are interfacing with a database that's in Amazon, like RDS or interfacing with S3 or something. And there is a lot of desire to get database and database-like solutions, object storage, etc., file storage, block storage, on a Kubernetes cluster so that building blocks can be built in a Kubernetes cluster agnostic of a certain cloud provider. Am I understanding the motivation for working for the the, the storage? So yes, I, I think a lot of people talk about containers, container orchestration, and Kubernetes as being the thing that can start to give people cloud portability. But how can you really get cloud portability if you're still tied in and locked into the storage APIs on whichever respective cloud you're using. So if you're using S3 and you're putting your data there, that's where you're at, right? I mean, as much as you might be running your containers via Kubernetes, you're not moving to another cloud unless you're willing to deal with the latency overhead of talking to S3 from the other cloud, or you're willing to copy the data or move the data. And it's an interesting thing, too, because there's the API lock-in, which is not as much of an issue with S3 because S3 has become much more of a uh, you know, de facto API, but with some of some of the other storage services, the as a service products that that you see on uh, on the cloud, there definitely is the API lock in issue. But there's even more of just like a data gravity and a data mass problem, which is like the data's there. You either got to copy it or you got to you know you got to move it. So for the first one, for sort of the API problem, I think being able to just pick your own API and your own service that you're going to run on a container orchestrator or some system that gives you the flexibility of being able to move between clouds is a huge desire, just exactly as, as you said. But again, you still have the data gravity thing that you got to think about. So it'll be interesting to see how that evolves. Now, I love the clouds, you know, and everything that they've done. But what should be interesting is to see how they really feel about the fact that, you know, people would want to get portability from these services. Because <laughs> it's definitely not in their best in, their best interest from a business model perspective to want to help that in the open source community. So I, the reason why I'm saying that is I think one of the reasons why storage has also not been as much of a focus in a lot of the container orchestration environments is because who's really incentivized or aligned to make a bunch of that that actually work? You know, the, even the big storage companies, a lot of them would prefer that you kept using their storage solutions than, you know, use some piece of software that you might run and manage yourself 
uh, in a converged way, because maybe over time that could give you the flexibility of even not having to rely on, 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 on their services. So, you know, just interesting questions to be asking and thinking about um, when it comes to storage. Now, the reason why storage, that's all kind of the business and industry reasons. The biggest reason why, why storage-based systems haven't been brought to these platforms from a technical perspective, not from sort of an incentive perspective or anything else, it's just because it's hard. <laughs> and it's hard because, you know, when it, with a stateless container, when it dies, I can reschedule it someplace else. You know, it's not a big deal. Most likely with a stateless container, I'm running many instances of it. So if any one single one dies, I could reroute traffic to somebody else. So there's just, there's a lot more flexibility that you actually have. With stateful, I'm, you know, I probably have to solve the, am I using local storage or am I using some external storage problem first? If I'm using some external storage, it gets a little better because at least I don't have to deal with the storage on my, but it's still hard because the ways in which you might want to do upgrades or the ways in which you might want to do do things like backups or restores or like anything else that's kind of complicated day two operations as we like to think of them for a lot of these services. They're just way more complicated than these stateless microservices. They, they don't have day two operations for the microservices. They just have like reschedule, bring in a new version of it, whatever it is. And so there's that whole aspect, which is the complexity of just operating it. But and but then there's the whole you can use local storage versus versus external. And if you choose to use local, basically what you're doing is you're taking a, a system which was designed to. You've heard the phrase, you know, cattle not pets, right? Which was designed to treat all the machines as cattle, and you're effectively creating making some of the machines pets. That's kind of like it's counter to everything we've been trying to do if you're going to be using local storage because you're making those machines pets because that's the machine where you wrote the local storage, which means that's the machine where you need to reschedule the stuff in the future, which means that's the machine where you can't reschedule anything else in the future. Like let's say you're doing an upgrade and you bring down the container that's trying to do storage on that machine. You can't let somebody else jump in and start running on that machine because you have to be able to rerun this thing on the machine. So there's a whole host of other problems that basically end up happening with with Stateful, which ends up being complicated. (laughs) So again, because I think anyone who was running Kubernetes in the cloud, they could solve this problem using external storage, like S3, even external volumes, like EBS, lots of ways in which they could actually go ahead and solve these problems. I think that, that there hasn't been as much of an incentive to actually try and figure that out, coupled with the fact that there's not great incentive. You have a really hard problem. It's going to kind of be, I think, longer until, until any of that stuff actually evolves. Now, you know, it's interesting because one of the, the things we did, if I could give a small plug here for a second for, for, for the work that we're doing in DCOS, that was one of the first things we actually tackled with the things on DCOS. So, you know, our Cassandras and our Kafkas and our HDFSs and Elasticsearch and all these things which are heavily stateful systems, you know, we said, well, we want to we want to figure out how you can bring the container like experience or the public cloud like experience for those things onto the platform um, and, and make that, you know, as good as just launching containers. And that's one of the things that we did really early. And that's, again, why, you know, from our world, we have you can bring up and run Kubernetes alongside of HDFS and Cassandra and Kafka and Redis and, and, and all these things. And so we just, you know, in Mesos itself, we spent a lot of time investing in what are the primitives we need to do to be able to have things like reservations for, you know, these stateful services and to be able to think about what's the best way to manage the disks and so forth and so on, which is one of the things that ultimately inspired us working with Google and other people on CSI, the container storage interface, which is where you saw me yesterday at the storage working group. And we we, we briefly talked about that at the storage working group. And there's other talks here on CSI at KubeCon as well. And so, yeah, so that focus, you know, that was us thinking about how we'd want to do that and then figuring out if there's things we want to contribute back to the open source community when it comes to storage and, and, and what we're trying to do. And so you'll continue to see this push in the Kubernetes community for people wanting to think about and do storage on Kubernetes, but there's a lot of things that I think will have to happen over the course of the next couple of years for that to to become a reality. And, and just because it's a hard problem, just because there's a lot of work that has to, has to get done. And what will be interesting is to see who from the industry really steps up and helps to drive this. And again, this is just me coming full circle with 
what I was saying earlier in, in the disc, in this part of the discussion. You know, will you see it, it happen a lot um, from the cloud providers or not? Because if you do, I mean, hats off to them. But in many ways, that's potentially cannibalizing their business because for you to run MySQL on Kubernetes instead of using the cloud's relational database definitely gives you more flexibility of being able to walk away from that cloud. Well, it's probably, I mean, it's going to be Google. I mean, if anybody's going to push it, it's going to be Google. In terms of having the vector with the most magnitude would be my guess, because they've got the most to, yeah. most market share to, to recover. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, that'll be interesting. But, cause... But honestly, I don't even think the other cloud providers are going to like really, they won't be resistant. I don't think they'll be resistant to it. In fact, I think they'll even provide some anti-frictional, minor anti-frictional capacity just because, I mean, I think there's a lot of ways to make money. There's a lot of ways for a cloud provider to be successful. And you don't want to build a bad reputation. The cost of a bad reputation is just getting higher and higher and higher from the cloud provider standpoint. So I think it's just like, we'll see more good actors and, or more increasingly subtle bad yeah. actor behavior if yeah, it's going to yeah. be bad actors. So. <laughs> anyway, Ben, great talking to you. Yeah, this thanks been great. for having me. Yeah, we should do this again sometime. Sounds good. Okay. Cool. Awesome. Okay. Wow.